0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Acts chapter 2. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in the seat back in front of you. And uh, if you're using that Bible in the seat back in front of you, you'll find Acts chapter 2 on page six seven uh, hundred 771. Acts chapter 2. Uh, over the past few months, CBC's leaders have been, have been seeking to discern more clearly what God's vision for our church is over the next several years, and we've been praying about it. We've been discussing it. We've been listening to God um, and to one another. This is kind of a, a time to recalibrate. We've had a vision for the last few years, and now we're saying, where are we at, and, and where is God leading us into the next several years? Um, and uh, o- over the past few months, in addition to or in the past month, in addition to praying and discussing and listening to God and one another as, as leaders we 've been inviting the congregation into the con- the conversation, trying to hear from you and what your sense is about where God is leading us, because this is something that we discern together and so far, it seems there 's three themes which have come through pretty strongly one is um, that as we, is that we aspire as a congregation. Um, to be a people uh, where, where others experience a warm welcome, where they experience um, care and concern, both emotional support and also practical support and help. The, the second theme that's been pretty strong is that it isn't just our human care that, that um, we're talking about, but, but rather that through us, God would ex- uh, people would experience God's care and God's help, that they would encounter God personally through our community. Third is that we need to pass this on. We need to multiply it. Um, that what's best about CBC needs to be um, raised up in, in, in the next generation, uh, into, into more people as we disciple and we mentor one another and, and help each other and others as well grow up in, in our walk with God. So that's a good start to a vision. Um, but... But as leaders, we feel that we need to to continue to to seek God and to pray about this. And so we want to invite you, as Ann mentioned, to spend time this morning um, to continue praying about this, to ask God to guide us and and give us clearly what his vision and dreams are for us. And and somehow I suspect that God's vision for us is even bigger than our vision for ourselves. And just we read... Acts 2, the story of Pentecost this morning. This is Pentecost Sunday, which is one reason we focused on that. And you get a sense of the bigness of God's heart and God's power and what God wants to do. Um, So we're inviting you this morning to pray about that. And um, after the service, we're going to have our regular Sunday school classes, but we're inviting each Sunday school, in whatever way they want to handle it, um, to spend some or all or however they want to do it, of, of your time in Sunday school classes praying about this. Um, also in the lounge, in place of the regular discussion group, we'll be praying about this together, and then as Ann mentioned, we'll be back here tonight for those who can come from 7 to 8 to continue praying, um, and along the way, if you get uh, impressions or I- insights uh, as we're praying, and you want to share them, and you don't have a chance to share them at the time, there's a, a board out in the foyer you can write them on, or you can write them on that wiki space online, and we can share together. So my job this morning is to set the table. Um, to stretch our vision, and with this in mind, let's turn our attention to Acts two. About two thousand years ago, a group about the size of our congregation, uh, a group of excited and yet confused disciples of Jesus, were holed up, praying together in an upper room in a city in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, and they were excited because Jesus, who they had seen put to death had risen again from the dead, proving that he was, in fact, the long-expected Messiah that they were longing and hoping that he would be. Yet they were confused because after Jesus rose from the dead and they witnessed him alive, he, Jesus hadn't gone on and done all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. He hadn't kicked the bad guys, the oppressors of God's people, out of his city. He hadn't set up his eternal kingdom. He hadn't begun to extend his rule so that it spread over the whole world. Instead, Jesus had disappeared into heaven. But before he'd gone, Jesus had had told his followers to wait, to wait until he poured out his Holy Spirit on them as he'd promised. And this is what we read about happening In today's passage, wouldn't it have been great to have experienced Pentecost? The the rushing wind, the the tongues of fire, the strong sense of God's presence that caused Jesus' followers just to burst out in praise and to declare his wonders. These phenomena drew drew a crowd, and, and before you knew it, Peter had stepped forward to explain to the crowd what was going on. In verses 14 to 37, which Kim read for us, we have recorded a summary of what Peter said in the first, you could call it, the first Christian sermon. And uh, basically, Peter had three points. Preachers haven't changed much ever since. Um, and, And Peter had a scripture to back each one up. The first point is that what happened at Pentecost was the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Peter quotes Joel as an example. Through the Old Testament prophet Joel, God had promised that in the last days he would pour out his spirit, not just on a king here or on a great prophet there, but on all of God's people. All of God's people, young and old, male and female, would prophesy and dream dreams, enjoying a fresh sense of God's presence and of God's word speaking to them. That's what's happening now, Peter says on Pentecost. That's Peter's first point in his sermon. His second point is that the fact that this is happening proves that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Because the pouring out of the Spirit isn't happening on everybody. It's only happening on those who are followers of Jesus. John the Baptist had said right at the beginning of his ministry, preparing the way for Jesus, that Jesus was going to baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. And now it's happening, which is proof that Jesus has risen from the dead. After all, if Jesus is still dead, he can't be pouring out the Spirit on anyone. Jesus, or Peter's rather,'s third point then builds on the second one, because if God's Spirit is being poured, poured out on Jesus' followers, not only must Jesus be alive, but Jesus must be exalted to the right hand of God to reign. Because according to the Old Testament, who was supposed to pour out God's spirit? God was. So how can Jesus be doing it? Well, only if Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, where he's received from God the authority and the power to pour out God's spirit on his followers. So that's how Peter concludes in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah that's really bad news if you're one of the people listening and you realize the one you condemned and executed is actually God's chosen one and that now God has raised Jesus and promoted him to be ruler over everything Uh oh now you're in trouble And that's what the people realize. They can't deny that these are Jesus' followers and that Jesus has now poured out the Holy Spirit on them. And so they can't deny that Jesus has been raised and exalted, as Peter says. So look at their response, verse 37. They are cut to the heart. And they ask, brothers, what shall we do? And look at the amazing offer of mercy that Peter communicates. Repent and, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you also will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. And 3,000 were added to their number that day. So on Pentecost Sunday, the the church celebrates these events, the receiving of, of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And... If we were to continue to read the book of Acts, we read a little bit more, that uh, famous passage about the early believers, Um, and and as as you continue in the book of Acts, we we see that through the Holy Spirit, the, the early church is enabled to continue to fulfill the amazing mission that Jesus began. Just as Jesus preached good news and offered mercy and forgiveness to all people, even to his enemies, even as Jesus had healed the sick and cast out demons and even raised the dead, so the early church continues to do all of these things on his behalf. And within the next 30 years, as the book of Acts records it, due to the efforts of the early church, communities of Jesus' followers begin to spring up all over the Roman world. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, you know this is an inspiring, dynamic story. But the story continues beyond the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit continues to to grow and to empower and to guide Jesus' followers in in continuing Jesus' mission on through the ages and right down to the present time. And I want to take some time this morning to, to sketch some of the highlights of this story, because the story of what happens after the New Testament ends down to today isn't told or appreciated often enough. After all, Peter stated in his sermon that God had made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And and here's the question. If Jesus is the exalted Lord, what difference does this make? What what does Jesus' reign look like as Jesus extends it over time in this world. And if Jesus has poured out his spirit on his people, what has his spirit been accomplishing these past 2,000 years? And where do we find ourselves in the story today? Well, what we find, beginning with the book of Acts and continuing over the the first 280 years or so after Christ, is an amazing missional movement spreading all over the Roman Empire. As little communities of 20 or or 30 or or, or 50 people came to follow Jesus together in city after city and village after village. And most of these small communities met in households, which at that time were composed not just of a nuclear family, but of aunts and uncles, grandparents, uh, servants, apprentices, business partners, all living and working together under one roof, engaging in cottage industry, which is the way that the economy worked back then. And when a key figure in in such a household came to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, uh, often um, all or much of the household would follow suit. And others in the neighborhood, as they came to follow Jesus, would, would join this household, this house church, in meeting together and learning together how to follow Jesus and spreading the good news and the blessing of Jesus to their neighbors, to their friends, and to other towns and other neighborhoods. And in this way, as best we can tell from the historic work of uh, historical work of scholars like Rodney Stark and others, within 280 years or so, by the beginning of the fourth uh, century, some 50 percent of the Roman Empire had come to follow Jesus. A- and all of this was without many of the resources we depend on today. Uh, during this whole time, there were very few church buildings. There were a uh, few pla- paid clergy. There were a uh, few seminaries. There were few, um, well, there was no TV or radio or internet, no Twitter. Um, and there were few ministry resource catalogs or conferences to go to. And much of the time, in fact, these little Jesus communities were persecuted. Their leaders were taken away from them. They had to meet in secret at times. And their copies of the scripture were sometimes confiscated. And yet, under these circumstances, under the guidance and the empowerment of God's Spirit, and with the conviction that Jesus Christ, and not Caesar, was indeed the true Lord of the Roman Empire and of the whole world, these little communities spread like wildfire. As they went, they continued to heal the sick in Jesus' name, to cast out demons, to, to pray for and receive miracles, and to testify about Jesus as Lord. They also demonstrated and offered the world surrounding them a community where there was warmth and love and forgiveness, unlike what could be found anywhere else. They cared for the poor and needy. They respected their women. They treated the outcasts and the despised like equals. They rescued and and nurtured unwanted children and other weak, vulnerable people whom the culture disposed of. They sacrificed for those in distress. They risked their lives for their faith. Finally, by the time of Constantine, in around 300, 313 to be exact, Christians had passed all the other religions in number and strength, as best we can tell. And Constantine made them the official religion of the Roman Empire. Jesus was now officially Lord of the Western civilized world. At this point, as the Roman Empire began to absorb the church into its structures and into its culture, Christianity quickly went from being a missional movement to being a religious institution. Church leaders, instead of being hunted down, were given full-time jobs and big salaries. Uh, Big and elaborate church buildings were built to the glory of God. The loose networks of of house churches, which existed to that time, were organized Roman-style into a top-down hierarchy. And the teachings of Scripture were drawn upon to inform and to guide Roman law and Roman society. And and so Christendom was born. The the Western world was now a Christian one. And and this had many benefits, some of which we still enjoy today. But at the same time, it didn't take long for the life and the vitality of Christianity to ebb away. Well, as, as the church first became comfortable and then became corrupt many who had a deep, committed faith began to feel really uncomfortable with this new form of Christianity. And, and so you begin to see hermits uh, retreating into the desert to, to find Jesus afresh and to live a more compelling life. And, and then monasteries formed to try to recapture a purer and more vital form of Christianity, which was getting lost in the worldly affairs of the Roman Empire. And these monasteries have often gotten a bad rap and and have been stereotyped as being cut off from the world and and cloistered off in irrelevancy, and and some certainly were, but many were anything but irrelevant. Many monasteries became beacons of light in a dark world. They became places of refuge and and justice and of healing and of hope. Many monasteries were highly missional. They, They were impacting the surrounding culture in amazing ways, both spiritual and practical. Other renewal movements took place as well. Some went on mission to places like Ireland and to other places at the far edges of the Roman Empire to bring the gospel to places that hadn't heard of Jesus yet. And so fast-forwarding a great deal um, on the topic of missions, it, it wasn't until much later in the early 1700s that missions as we think of it today got going in earnest. And the idea of missions at at this time, which is still Western the Western world as 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 a Christian one, was that we in Christendom already had Jesus. Sure, there were many in Christendom who were nominal Christians and the local churches needed to evangelize them, but but this was not a cross-cultural endeavor because these people were already culturally Christian and they already knew about God and the Bible and church for the most part. They just needed some spiritual renewal or to be born again or to have a personal relationship with Jesus rather than just a cultural one. But cross-cultural missions was different. This was going to pagan places where there was no Christianity, no knowledge of the true God or of Scripture or of Jesus. And so churches in Christendom sent out missionaries to pagan lands. Uh, People trained in in learning new languages and and cultures and, and bridging cultural divides to recontextualize the gospel for pagan peoples who worship spirits and false gods. This was missions in the the 1700s, and it was done in two distinct ways to oversimplify a good deal. Largely, it was done with an attempt to bring Christendom to these foreign pagan places, uh, to, to build the institutions of Christianity in these places that didn't have them. And so now at its worst, you had these natives who had maybe worn grass skirts and told stories in their tribes and lived in huts. Now building Western-style church buildings and and singing European hymns and listening to long, abstract sermons like we all get to listen in the Western world. (laughs) And you had bishops and you had liturgies and you had Sunday schools and you had denominational policies being transplanted to these, these new cultures. There were some missionaries, though, who were deeply critical of this way. People like Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China. These missionaries said that the institutions and the cultural baggage of Christendom got in the way of Christ. And and they found these these institutions and and cultural trappings formed a cultural barrier which slowed down God's work and, and the spread of the good news about Jesus. And so these missionaries sought to let Christianity um, become an indigenous movement uh, rooted in the cultures of the local people. They sought to to set the gospel free from all the the cultural trappings of Christendom um, so that it could spread rapidly, carried on the winds of the Holy Spirit, even if they couldn't control it, even if it was messy and sometimes didn't look Christian enough by Western Christendom standards. And and so you have initiatives like Dawn 2000, which aimed to catalyze movements of, of churches, indigenous churches, which planted other churches, which planted other churches until the vision was every village and tribe and cultural group had a community of Jesus followers in their own neighborhood. Who, who could give them not just a, a tract or a broadcast, but a living taste and, and demonstration of what it looks like when Jesus is Lord and, and when God's loving ways are followed. And, and these churches, which missionaries are, are, were and are still seeking to plant and to multiply, are not big Christendom churches with steeples and pastors, but rather they're often uh, little groups of 20 to 50 believers meeting in someone's home or under a tree. And missionaries have proved that just like in the early years of the church, these groups can multiply rapidly. They can create dynamic movements of God. And so we know today that in many places in China and elsewhere in the, the developing world, Christianity is growing like crazy and, and exhibiting great life and great power, very much like we read about in the book of Acts. Meanwhile, in the West, the institutions of Christendom are crumbling. It began perhaps as early as the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation. Certainly, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution did a lot to uh, uh, increase its or speed up its demise. But it was perhaps the 1960s that was the final death blow, at least in America. By the time missionary uh, a missionary named Leslie Newbegin famously returned home in the mid 1970s after decades of service as a missionary in India he said to the Western church, wake up! Doesn't anyone else realize that the West has become the mission field? Have you looked around you and noticed? Christendom is crumbling. No longer is the majority of the public in church every Sunday morning. No longer are most people culturally Christians having grown up with an awareness of God and the Bible and what goes on In a church on Sunday mornings. No longer do theologians and clergy get regularly and respectfully quoted in major newspapers. No longer does anyone pretend in our broader culture to be living by the Ten Commandments or that's even a good idea. Right? Church attendance is declining uh, and many people want nothing to do with what they call the organized church. Uh, Don't get me wrong, people are still curious about God. They're intrigued about Jesus. They're spiritually open. That's been my experience as I've talked to people. I know it's been the experience of many of you and there's lots of research to back it up. But the last place that many people want to go for answers today is the organized church. They'll go to Oprah. They'll uh, Google religious topics on the internet. They'll pick up a book or download a book from Barnes and Nobles um, on a religious topic before they'll walk into a church service. And yet, we American Christians still tend to try to reach them by and large by inviting them to church services and by building bigger and better churches and programs which mostly today just attract Christians from other smaller churches. So here's a really important question for us to grapple with. Why do we still try so hard to hold on to the institutions of Christendom when Christianity began not as an institution but as a movement. And whenever it becomes an institution, it tends to lose the vitality and the spiritual power it has as a movement. And there's a couple possible answers I can think of, which we would do well to ponder. Uh, One is that we prefer the safety and the security and the convenience that institutions give us. Like J.R.R. Tolkien's hobbits, who preferred the, the cozy familiarity of the shire, rather than the dangers and the adventures of the the bigger, broader world. We'd rather find shelter in a familiar institution than risk the uncertainty and the sacrifice and even the persecution that movements require of us. That's one possible answer. A second is perhaps that institutional Christianity is the only Christianity we really know. We have equated Christianity with Christendom for so long in the West that that we're only vaguely aware, maybe through our missionary friends or a little bit of church history that we've heard of, that Christianity can exist in a more movemental form. In fact, even through the New Testament, or rather, even though the New Testament only presents Christianity as a movement, we have unwittingly reinterpreted it through our institutional lenses. And so, for example, we read a verse like, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And uh, we assume that it's telling us that we should regularly attend a Sunday morning church service, right? Um, When actually it has to do with gathering regularly in homes for food and fellowship and sharing our spiritual gifts with one another. Or we hear the word worship and we think, singing songs on Sunday morning when in fact the New Testament hardly ever equates worship with singing and rarely uses the word worship to describe what the early believers did when they gathered together. Or we read, go and make disciples, and, and we think that if we offer a six-week class for new Christians, we've covered that. When in fact Jesus understood discipleship to be a lifelong commitment to learning the ways of Jesus and that it involved doing life together in relationship with those further along on the journey than us. Uh, The truth is that our views of church and our views of ministry and our church music and even our theology has been conditioned by 1,700 years of Christendom. And, And so here's the question. Now that Christendom is cracking and falling apart all around us, is that a great tragedy only? Or is it also a new opportunity, a chance for the wind of the Spirit to blow afresh, for the Jesus movement to gain new purity and vitality. So let's bring this whole, uh, closer to home for us. We live in the Northeast, right? One of the most post-Christian, unchurched, anti-religious areas of the country. Christendom is all but dead in the Northeast. So what's our response Do we we give up? Do we just say, well, you know, Jesus isn't Lord of the Northeast anymore. Uh, The Spirit can't blow here anymore. Uh, The spiritual lights are going out, and there's nothing we can do about it. Christianity is moving to the global south and to the east. We know that. And and so the U.S. is going to become as spiritually dead as Europe, and uh, we in the Northeast are going first, I guess. Is that what we say, or, or do we say, No, Jesus is still Lord of the Northeast. He must be. And the Spirit is still among us like he was among those 120 believers on the day of Pentecost. Maybe he needs to be stirred up and given some room to work. And who is going to spread the good news here in the Northeast and, and bring God's blessing here if we don't do it? Let me ask you, who are we expecting to do it? Why can't our church, CBC, be on the forefront of rediscovering what it means to be part of a Jesus movement? After all, the Roman Empire was as spiritually dark and as hostile to Christianity as our world is today in many ways. And yet, because early Christianity was a movement led by the Spirit, who really believed Jesus was Lord, it spread like wildfire in that situation. We have the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit too. Jesus is still Lord even here. So why can't that be true of us? I'm glad to report that other churches even here in Westchester are are asking these questions too. And there's a vibrant conversation going on in the West about what it will look like practically to become a movement again as well as whatever's left of us as an institution. And one way of getting at those possibilities is to look at the difference between institutions and movements. Here are a few contrasts. First, institutions are centralized and highly organized. Movements are loosely networked and their structure is nimble and lightweight. So institutions are rigid, they're slow to adapt, they don't cope well during times of rapid change like we're going through now, while movements are better able to be flexible and creative. Second, institutions are, are safe, secure, and comfortable as long as you don't question them and as long as they remain solid and don't come crashing down on your head. Meanwhile, on the other hand, movements are often uh, fragile and unsure and risky. They take faith and sacrifice. Third, institutions are about maintenance. While They grow for a while, maybe for a long time. Once they plateau, usually their main goal becomes holding on to what they've got for as long as possible. Movements, on the other hand, are about mission. They're about growing and impacting and taking new ground. So while institutions too often get preoccupied with structures and procedures, movements tend to be focused on ideals and impact. Fourth... Institutions assume and require peace with and support from the surrounding culture. Movements are based on tension with the surrounding culture. They only exist because things need to change. Fifth, institutions are led by experts and elites for the sake of the people. Movements, on the other hand, are led by entrepreneurs and idealists who inspire, mobilize, and empower the people. Sixth, institutions look back on the past, (laughs) seeking to hold on to what was, while movements look forward to the future, seeking to achieve what could be. Well, those are some of the conversations and wrestlings and tensions which are going on about the future of the church in America and the Western world. And so the question for us is, how does this apply to CBC? In what ways are we more like an institution, In what ways are we more like a movement? What is our future as we seek to know God, to grow together, and to show Christ in Westchester and Putnam counties and the Northeast? What might it look like for us to work with other like-minded churches to launch a people movement which could grow and multiply followers of Jesus, who could reach out together and bring the presence and the blessing of Jesus into places that our churches in their more institutional forms aren't welcome and can never go. That's something worth praying about, don't you think? Let's pray. God, we live busy lives, and it's easy to be wrapped up in What's going on immediately around us? Though we tune into the news now and then and get snapshots of the bigger world, but as we step back and um, try to think about the bigger world and the broader sweep of of what you're doing in history, we can feel overwhelmed and disoriented, as well as maybe enlivened and hopeful. And I pray that you would give us the great faith in you and the great hope in what you're doing in the world. Um, that will allow us to be open to whatever you have for us, to take risks, to be creative, um, to hold on wisely to what's good, and to embrace, hopefully, what could be. And so guide us together uh, as a church as we continue to seek what your vision is for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing again. uh, Another try at that same song, Holy Spirit, we're going to close with that.
1: If you can stand up and praise with us. taste and see of the sweetest of love. When my heart becomes free and my shame is
0: prayer instead of a benediction
1: and this prayer is by saint francis lord make us an instrument of your peace where there is hatred let us show love where there is injury pardon where there is discord harmony where there is error truth where there is doubt faith where there is despair hope where there is darkness light And when there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.
0: Go in peace. Amen.